So as Jonathan said, my name's Beth and I'm part of the church family here in Camborne and I'm going to be sharing some of what I think God's been saying to me as I've been reading this passage and what it is that we might be able to draw out of it for us in Camborne. So before I start, shall we pray? Lord God, thank you that you're here with us now and I pray that you would take my words and that it would be your spirit that moves in people's hearts. Amen. So... Today is Trinity Sunday, and this is the Sunday where Christians around the world celebrate the mystery that is the Holy Trinity. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it seems particularly appropriate this morning that we think, be thinking about the Trinity because we've had quite a lot of baptisms in Camborne recently. And as you see, the baptismal table here, we've got it set up with some symbols of baptism. And we've welcomed Noah this morning, who was baptized a few weeks ago. And this afternoon, the Hawes and the Strogers are bringing their children to Camborne Church to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as we reflect on what that means, I'm going to draw on Romans chapter 5. And we'll think about what a difference the Trinity makes to our understanding of God as love, God in salvation, and our hope in the glory of God. To get us started, it's worth remembering that the words we use in baptism come from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or as the prayer book had it, in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. Which reminds me of a rather endearing story about a little boy who had just been to his baby sister's baptism. Now, this was many years ago when the prayer book was in use. As many of you will remember, then the rubric there told the, the priest to take the infant and dip it into the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And this little boy had clearly been reflecting upon this because there he was in the garden playing with his teddy bear beside a pothole that had some water in. And his father looked out the window and he saw him there and he thought, oh, his, the baptism, it must have meant something. And so he tiptoed out, he tiptoed out to hear what the little boy was saying. And the little boy took his teddy and he said, Teddy, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and into the Holy goes. <laughs> so a light-hearted start there as we come to think about the mystery that is the Holy Trinity. But it's slightly complicated to get our heads around, wouldn't you say? Part of the problem with the doctrine of the Trinity is that we don't see this word appearing in the Bible. It was first used by Tertullian, a Latin theologian, who wrote in the early third century. But the truths that make up this doctrine they're there in scripture, as we heard from Matthew 28. But there have been those in the history of the church who've denied the Trinity, most famously the Arian heresy. 
and that was about a century after Tertullian. And that led to the details of the doctrine being pinned down at the Council of Nicaea. And a key theologian at the time was Saint Athanasius, and he spent his life combating the Arian heresy. So perhaps the, the safest way to sum up what the doctrine of the Trinity is about is to quote directly from his writings. And he says, We venerate one God in the Trinity, and the Trinity in oneness, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the divine nature of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one. So we have one nature, three persons. And perhaps the ancient image of the interlocking loops can be helpful to us here. And he goes on to confirm that the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son are all divine, all equal in glory, all equal in majesty and co-eternal. They are all uncreated, all infinite, all eternal, all almighty and all God. And nevertheless, he writes, there are not three gods, but there is one God. In this Trinity, there is nothing first or later, nothing greater or less, but all three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with one another. Or to use an analogy suggested by St. Augustine, another of the great thinkers at the time, we could compare the three parts of the Trinity to being like the three parts of an individual human being, which he said were mind, spirit, and will. But like all analogies, you can only take that so far. So that's the Trinity sorted in three minutes. Perfect sense, everybody? You've got that sussed? I'll have the exam papers ready on the way out. Now... I think it's okay that we get a bit confused because God is so much bigger than we can possibly understand. To fit him into our human minds can be, well, he's bigger than we can expect. And just because we don't understand all the details doesn't mean that we can't accept the doctrine and that we can't live with it. To me, it's a bit like quantum mechanics. Who here completely understands quantum mechanics? I confess I have a PhD in computational mineral physics and I don't completely understand quantum mechanics. But that didn't stop me from doing calculations about atomic vibration that relied on quantum mechanics and meant we could predict the behavior of certain materials. So sometimes you don't have to fully understand something for it to be really important. And that's what we're talking about this morning. What does it really mean to us here in Camborne that God is Trinity? Well, the first thing to say is that the Trinity means that God is love. Because God is an eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God knows all about love. God is love. And that is perfect love. And that love is so great that it overflows into the world. Out of that love, we were created. God is a God of relationships, and he created us to be in relationship with him.
Not because he was lonely, but because he had so much love to give. And that is the basis for the passage that we read this morning. God's love is behind everything that Paul writes. If you have that in front of you, it may help to to look down at it. Because Romans was written in AD 57, and that's long before Tertullian coined the phrase Trinitarian. But Paul clearly appreciates this deep mystery of faith. And if you flick back a few pages to the start of the letter, then you'll see that Paul talks of the Son, and by implication the Father, and the Holy Spirit right there in the opening paragraph as he introduces himself as one set aside to preach the gospel. And the gospel, the good news that Paul was preaching, is this. God loves us, no matter what we've done. But because God is perfect goodness, we can't get close to him because we're not perfect. It's like saying that you've got a white carpet and great big muddy football boots. And if you try to get close to the white carpet, you're going to put muddy footprints on it. Because God is perfect and we are not perfect, we cannot get close to him unless something is done to make us clean. And that's what happened when God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to die in our place. Because God is Trinity, then he could come himself to earth, fully God, fully man, and he could die in our place. Because God is Trinity, then this is not a case of cosmic child abuse. It isn't an angry father sending a weak-willed son to die in our place. Because God is Trinity, God loved us. God sent himself to die for us. And all we need to come into the presence of the Father, Paul teaches, is put our faith in Jesus, the Son, as God. And that's what we affirm at baptism. Faith in the risen Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul means when he writes, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But our reading continues. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So, as we read this passage in the light of the doctrine of the Trinity, what does it say to us in Camborne? What is the hope of the glory of God? I think we can get a clue as to what Paul means if we look at Romans 3.23, where he writes, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This implies that the glory of God means man living as God intended him to live. And so now, in chapter 5, when Paul writes of the hope of the glory of God, he's talking about our confidence that we will fulfill the purposes for which God has called us, you and me. Now, of course, the first step on that path is accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, as Ken and Sekai were saying earlier, and accepting that he died on the cross for us so that 
as Paul writes, we can have peace with God. But it doesn't end there. Fulfilling the purposes that God has in mind for us is about more than a single moment of decision. It's about living out our lives in light of that. It means living as children of God, even in times of suffering and when times are tough. It's a difficult call. And yet Paul goes on, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Because God is Trinity, he has given us the Holy Spirit. And because God is Trinity, we have him living in us. And that's the only way we can hope to live to the glory of God. I'm reminded of what William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1940s said. He said, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good giving me a life like Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could, could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. And this is what Paul is telling us right here in Romans. Because God is Trinity, and because that Trinity is love, then God himself could come to earth and live among us. God himself could die in our place. And then God himself can come and live within us, changing us from the inside out so that we can give God glory. So, what have we seen? That God is three persons and yet one nature. And that although putting this mystery into words is very difficult, the practical outworking of this doctrine has a huge impact on our faith. We have seen that the Trinity means that God is love. The Trinity makes salvation possible. And the Trinity gives us the hope of the glory of God. Like with so much of our faith, doctrine is important, but it's how it changes us that really matters. And at different stages of our lives, different parts of this will probably speak to us differently. And so I wonder, what does it mean to you that God is love? Your human experiences of love, of fatherhood, of community, they might be less than perfect. But when you pray in the name of the Father, or when you say the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in Heaven, do you catch a glimpse of the love that is the Trinity? I wonder, what does it mean to you that Jesus died in the cross on your place? Or maybe what speaks to you right now is that God came to earth to live as a human being. When you pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, or when you pray in the name of the Son, do you catch a glimpse of that incredible combination of humanity and divinity? And I wonder, what does the hope of the glory of God mean to you?
what might God the Holy Spirit be doing in your life? And when you pray in the name of the Son, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, do you catch a glimpse of that rushing wind and fire at Pentecost? Or do you feel your heart strangely warmed by his presence? I wonder what God will do here as we keep on praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.